Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these podcasts full-time. I do the writing, the research, everything. So any dollar you give helps keep it all going. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at bairdo37. Today, I'm looking at the northern Manitoba tri-community of the Pa, Opasquiac, and the RM of Kelsey. So, let's get right to it. The Indigenous Roots The Swampy Cree occupied the land that would one day be the Pa for centuries, and it's believed their ancestors migrated from the southeastern prairies of Canada as long as 9,000 years ago. According to the oral traditions of the Swampy Cree, they have occupied the area since a time before memory. Archaeological evidence shows evidence of people occupying the area as long as 4,000 years ago based on carbon dating. The Cree of the prairies and up into the Paw moved through the area using the water routes of the Burntwood River, the Grass River, and others. The Paw area was also a historical gathering place for the indigenous, where they would travel for spiritual healing. In the summer, they would come to the area to cultivate the land, fish and harvest, while also practicing the ceremonial way of life known as the Grand Medicine Society. Many bands of indigenous shared the territory and shared a common language of the Swampy Cree and dialect. This allowed for interrelated families that created strong social bonds, which would come together through the year for social and cultural activities, as well as important ceremonies. Various digs in the area have found pottery, arrowheads, and other artifacts that date back 2,500 years at least, as well as other discoveries that show caribou hunting may have been taking place as far back as 7,000 years ago. Typically, due to the use of smaller canoes, the indigenous would avoid the larger water bodies of Lake Winnipeg. At the spot that would be the Paw, the indigenous would often gather where they would journey down the Nelson River to trade at York Factory. 
1871, the Paw Band was organized through the signing of Treaty 5 by Chief John Constant. Timber rights in the area were granted to the Opaskwiak people and in 1904, a sawmill was opened on Mission Island. Soon after this point, the band surrendered their land on the south side of the river and in 1908 moved the sawmill to the north side. The sawmill would operate until 1930 and many of the current buildings on the reserve are still standing from those years and were constructed from the wood produced at that mill. Today, the Opasquiac Cree Nation is located next to the Pa. One of the most notable indigenous to come from the area is Duncan McCready, who was born in Grand Rapids but moved to the area when he was 16 to attend high school. Over the course of his life, he has become one of Canada's leading indigenous poets and has published four volumes of poetry. He's currently the Poet Laureate of Winnipeg, and in 2021, he won the Manitowapau Award at the Manitoba Book Awards. Henry Kelsey In talking about the paw, it's also important to talk about a man named Henry Kelsey. Kelsey was born around 1664 and he would join the Hudson's Bay Company in 1684 and was posted at York Factory. He would begin exploring for the company in 1688 and would continue to do so for the next several years. In 1690 he was told by the governor of York Factory, George Geyer, to journey up the Nelson River to find the most remote indigenous people to trade with. On June 12, 1690, he left York Factory with a group of indigenous guides and began to canoe up the Nelson River to the southwest. On July 10th, after traveling nearly 1,000 kilometers and passing through five lakes and 33 portages, he arrived in the spot that would one day be the Paw. He would name the spot Deering's Point, and as I mentioned earlier, it was a gathering spot for the indigenous. This made Kelsey the first European to reach the area that would be the Paw, and he would spend the winter there before continuing on his journey. That would make him not only the first European to reach the Canadian prairies, but also the first known European to sight and describe grizzly bears, the bison, and the great bison hunts. Fort Pascoya in 1740, southeast of the location that would one day be the Paw, the French would build several forts to control the chain of lakes to the west of Lake Winnipeg. One of those forts was Fort Pascoya, which was in a good location as it allowed for the trading with the indigenous who came down the rivers from future Saskatchewan. The name Pascoya came from the Cree's word for the Narrows, but may have also been named after the Opaskiwak Cree Nation. The first Fort Pascoya would only last for a short period of time. A second Fort Pascoya was built around 1750 and was first occupied by a man named Joseph-Claude Boucher. In 1754, celebrated explorer Anthony Henday visited the site and called it Hog Style. This fort would last until 1759 when it closed after New France was taken over by the English. In 1775, there was a trader located at the site briefly and there's evidence that the Northwest Company had a small trading post at the site, once again showing the importance of the fur trade through the 18th and into the 19th century. The RM of Kelsey I don't have to explain where the name for the rural municipality of Kelsey comes from because it's, of course, Henry Kelsey. But this district has its own unique history separate from the Paw, so I want to focus on it a bit. 
The RM is actually one of the most unique I've ever seen as it's not a whole piece and instead contains a large area around the paw and then farther north the communities of Wanless and Cranberry Portage. The local Cree Nation is also part of the rural municipality and in all it covers an area of 867 square kilometers. I will get back to talking about the paw and the various things in and around the community but I'm going to talk about some of the things you can find in the RM of Kelsey especially in the Cranberry Portage section. Cranberry Portage has been an important portage route for longer than fur traders have been in Canada, far longer. The portage route actually dates back to at least 2,000 years, and the first European to go through the area is believed to be Joseph Smith, who did so in 1763. Other famous explorers who came through the area include Peter Fiddler and Samuel Hearn. If cemeteries are your thing, then along the Umferville Road, there's a very old Métis cemetery that dates back over a century. The cemetery is untended, but its history is deep and it can be an interesting site to explore on a nice summer day. Of course, as this is a final resting place for many, be respectful. Within Cranberry Portage is the Cranberry Portage Heritage Museum. Located in the Canadian National Railway Station that was built in 1929, it has been a municipal heritage property since 1992. For several years, the building sat empty, but in 2012 it was turned into a museum that officially opened on May 31, 2015. The museum currently highlights not only the rail history of the area, but the wider indigenous and immigrant history. The history of the portage is honoured at the Cranberry Portage Monument. Erected in 2003 to honour the 3km portage, which was used heavily from the 1760s to the 1800s, when the route was abandoned for the Hayes River and Nelson River route that allowed for the use of York boats, the portage was still used by trappers and prospectors until 1928 when the village began to develop. The monument features the story of the portage as well as a full-scale model of a canoe that was used by the indigenous and early explorers. The Founding of the Community the origin of the community gets its start thanks to Herman Finger, and I'll talk more about him in the next section. When he created his Finger Lumber Company, he would in turn create the community of Fingerville for the workers of this company. The Paw itself began as a natural campsite thanks to being on the high dry banks of the Saskatchewan River. There have been several names for the area that the Paw would one day be located. The Cree called it the Opasqua, which translates as the High Wooded Narrows, and when fur traders arrived, they began to refer to the place using the Cree name, but calling it the Pasquaya, instead due to the French language pronunciation. The name slowly began to shorten until it was La Pa in French, and then The Pa in English. As the founders of the town were English, the name was filed as The Pa. The natural camping site slowly became a settlement, and that settlement became the town of The Pa in 1912, the same year that the area became part of Manitoba. The first mayor of the community would be, of course, Herman Finger. The same year that the Paw was made a town, there was an Anglican and Catholic church, a post office, a train station, newspaper, and a hospital. Over the next decade, the community would grow as buildings popped up on a weekly basis, while water and sewer lines were installed. Seen as the gateway to the north in Manitoba, the courthouse would be built in 1916, further showing the importance of the community for the provincial government. Today, over 5,000 people live in the Paw, and it's the 10th largest community in the province, and the largest town in the province. Herman Finger 
As was mentioned in the previous section, one of the most important individuals from the early history of the Paw was Herman Finger, who owned the Finger Lumber Company and was elected mayor when the town incorporated in 1912, serving until 1916. Born in Wisconsin, he would become the man often referred to as the founder of the Paw. As one of the early pioneer businessmen, he carved out the town and laid the foundations for the lumber industry. In Wisconsin, he would begin to work in the lumber industry for the Jerry Lumber Company, and by 1890 he saw that the northern United States lumber industry was ending, and he came to Canada for new opportunities. In 1907, he would come to the area that would be the Paw after spending time in Port Arthur, Ontario. Arriving in the area, he began to plan out the town site that would surround his sawmill. Now, one unfortunate aspect of his business dealings was that he would pressure Ottawa to limit the reserve on the south side of the Saskatchewan River that belonged to the indigenous. During the first auction sale of that land, he would purchase several lots using his own funds. The next step was getting the railroad, and for that he would approach Mackenzie and Mann, who were railroad builders, and he was able to convince them to bring in the railroad from the Hudson Bay Junction to the Pa. He did this by guaranteeing 17 cars of lumber weekly along the line. In 1919, he would sell his lumber company for $1.5 million, and in 1923, he died, one year after his wife, from a heart attack. His funeral was held in Winnipeg. Finger Station, located along the line to the Paw, would be named for him, and the station is still used to this day by Via Rail. Sam Waller Museum if you want to learn about the history of the Paw, then one of the best places to visit is the Sam Waller Museum. Located in the old courthouse that was built in 1916, it highlights the history of the indigenous, the fur traders, mining, and transportation in the community. The Paw Historical Society had been created in November of 1977 by a group of senior citizens from the local Golden Age Club. But who was Sam Waller? Sam Waller had come to Canada from England when he was 16 and he began working on a farm in Ontario. During the First World War, he served as a stretcher bearer in the trenches of France, and he would survive the war. After working around Canada, he would come to the Pa in 1939 to teach, which he did until 1946. Through the years, he also began to collect materials and specimens for teaching the children about history and the natural world. Waller was also known for disliking mechanical things, likely coming from his days in the trenches seeing the machines of war. Over the years, he developed a massive collection of items, and in 1955, he decided he wanted to set up his own little northern museum in town. He would buy a lot in town, and with two buildings from the Paw Lumber Company, he set up his museum. He would take him one year to arrange his holdings in the museum, and in 1970, the local Rotary Club constructed a larger building to house the museum. The museum was the first of its kind in Canada's northern region, and he would attend to it every day. His health would begin to decline in 1960, and on March 18, 1978, he would be taken to the hospital, with shortness of breath after battling pneumonia. He would die soon after. When the Historical Society was created in 1977, Waller was made an honorary member. Through his museum, it was Sam's wish to, quote, portray life as it once was in the distant past. Give the young the opportunity to see visions and the old to dream again their dreams. End quote. Today, in the museum that bears his name, there is Sam's Gallery, which is a smaller version of the Waller's Little Northern Museum that features many of the items he collected over the years.
I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. Prohibition and the SS King George V While the Prohibition era in the United States is far more well-known, Canada and many provinces had their own prohibition. In Manitoba, the Prohibition era began in 1916 and would last until 1923 after illegal speakeasies and bootleggers began to flourish. For those in the PA who enjoyed a bit of alcohol, they had to get creative and that is where the SS King George V came in. The ship was a floating beer parlor for a while, but eventually the local police decided to crack down on it and gave the owners a $200 fine for selling alcohol. That may not seem like much, but for that $200, it would be $3,500 today. Captain Horatio Hamilton Ross, who owned the Ross Navigation Company, also found a loophole related to the selling of alcohol. It could be purchased for sacramental uses, and in order to get a liquor permit, he would establish the Church of the Cult of Omar to accomplish this. Horatio Ross I like to look at some of the unique residents of a community, so I wanted to highlight Horatio Hamilton Ross. Born in Scotland to Sir Charles and Lady Ross of Rossy Castle, he had a childhood that was lavish and happy, but he felt the need to travel and explore. He would leave Scotland around 1900 and began to explore, going around South America and reaching San Francisco, where he would then travel to Alberta and spend his days in the Rockies, where he became a working cowboy and would build a large hotel in Medicine Hat. He would also work as a ranch manager, a gold prospector, and several other careers in the Canadian West. In 1905, he would build the SS Assiniboia, which was a 70-foot stern wheeler for cruising along the Saskatchewan River. He would take it after briefly hitting a sandbar to Winnipeg. After the Mandy Mine was found nearby, he would see opportunity and he created the Ross Navigational Company, which would operate barges and steamships for the mine, including the SS Nipawin that would carry a hundred people. During one year in the busy season, he wanted to take his friends on a pleasure cruise, but none of his ships were available. He would say, quote, Oh hell, I'll have to get another one, end quote. Going to Cedar Lake, he bought another boat, took it back to the Paw, and called it the SS Oh Hell. Sadly, in 1925, when he was 55, he was cleaning a gun when it accidentally went off and killed him. Ross Avenue in the Paw is named for him. The 
1913 fire. I often like to talk about fires on the podcast because they often are one of the most important moments in a town's history. A fire can change a town, reshape it, and bring in new laws that protect generations not yet born. The Paw would have arguably its worst fire on December 13, 1913, when strong winds took a small fire that started on the second floor of the Imperial Hotel at 5 a.m. and spread it through the town. Guests at the hotel were forced to leave wearing only their sleeping clothes. By the time the fire was out, a span of only three hours, the Imperial Hotel, the drugstore, a pool room, a jewelry shop, and the Lyric Theatre, which had only been completed one week earlier, was destroyed. The total loss from the fire was estimated to be $70,000 or $1.7 million today, and only half that amount was insured. The fire didn't spread beyond a house on the block thanks to 70 feet of clear space and the hard work of the fire brigade. The first plane arrives. The first plane to ever arrive in northern Manitoba would land at the Pa on October 15, 1920, and it was on that date that pilots Frank Ellis and Hector Dougal touched down in the community flying an Avro plane. The plane had planned to fly directly to the Pas, but bad weather forced them to fly just over the level of the trees and alter their course. Watching Canada geese shifting to the south away from the storm, they eventually followed them, and they would reach Hudson Bay Junction, but were unable to see a good place to land, so they decided to go against the heavy wind with low fuel and land at the Pas. Finally, they were able to reach the Paw, landing with a thud as their fuel ran out into the muskeg. At the same time, the community had a population of about 50 people, and everyone came out to see the plane. Ellis would state, quote, With the help of local residents, we set about extricating our aircraft. About two hours of daylight was left, and by Sunday noon, sufficient clearing had been done to an attempt to take off. End quote. Farley Mowat and the Lost in the Barrens For any fan of Farley Mowat, the paw may be somewhat familiar as it served as the setting of his book, Lost in the Barrens, published in 1956. This was the first of two young adult novels that he wrote to be set in the community. In the book, the community is the main trading center where the protagonist gets provisions and supplies before returning into the bush. Set in 1935, it is the coming-of-age tale about two boys in their teens. One boy is white while the other is Cree, and together they embark on a mission to relieve the starvation of a neighboring village. The book would win the Governor General's Award in 1956 and the Canada Library Association Book of the Year Award in 1958. It was also adapted into a 1990 television movie that was shot in Winnipeg. Curse of the Viking Grave, the sequel, would also mention the paw. The Railway Station Railway stations are incredibly important to the survival of a community and the Paw would get its own station in 1928 located right in town. There was optimism for the growth of the community in the 1920s and that led to the building of a second class railway station in the Paw which was unusual for its large size, use of brick and the multicolored bricks that created a decorative effect for it. The building still stands in the community and is a landmark for it hearkening back to the days when the community functioned as a terminus and distribution center for northern Manitoba and its importance in the mining and forestry industry. The Charlebu Chapel 
Built in 1897, the chapel was one of the first to be built in the area of any denomination, and it was the first Roman Catholic church to be built in northern Manitoba. The church was built by Ovid Chalabu, who would travel to the indigenous of the region to address their medical, educational, and spiritual needs. He built the structure using logs that were floated down the Saskatchewan River from Cumberland House, and the glass and the shingles for the church were shipped from Prince Albert, and it would operate as a local church until 1918 when it was replaced by another church. The church is the second oldest structure in the Paw, and it serves as a link to the years before the community truly ever existed. Christ Church Another old church, one that is even older than the chapel I mentioned earlier, is Christ Church, which was built in 1896 and has a link to another church that was built half a century earlier. The Devon Mission was founded in 1840 and was the first self-supporting Anglican mission in the northwest region of Canada. The Richardson Rescue Party would actually winter there in 1847 on their way to search for the lost expedition of Sir John Franklin. The furnishings of that original mission were moved to Christ Church upon its completion. Christ Church is also important in terms of its relationship with the Cree, where four painted canvas panels of the Latin alphabet are still found. They were used to teach the indigenous of the area during the early days of settlement. Today, the church remains in active use and retains much of its integrity. Now this is Sunday morning, June the 23rd, 1940. A brilliant day with not a cloud in the sky. A complete change indeed from the rain and the threats of rain that we've experienced since we left Winnipeg. I'm standing at the doorway of the little grey painted frame church in which some historical ceremonies are to take place. And uh, this, of course, is the par. And the church here is the Anglican church, Christ Church. 100 years ago, Henry Budd came to the par from Fort Garry and began his mission of converting the Indians of this district to Christianity. And ever since that time, the Anglican church has carried on continuous work in the par. It is to commemorate this century of labor that many church dignitaries and others are gathering here today and during this week. Henry Budd, who came to the Pa in 1840 and started the work of converting the Indians of the district, is uh, really responsible for the founding of this church. And I'm going to introduce the Reverend W.R. Hullen, the rector, and he is going to tell us something about some of the objects in the church. The Reverend W.R. Holland will be the speaker next. Uh, this morning we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the founding of Christ Church. It has been announced that uh, the parish was founded by the Reverend Henry Budd in 1840. There are very interesting historical relics in the church, chief of which are the hand-carved pews carved by the men of the, of the uh, Richardson Expeditionary, uh, the, the expedition in the Pa, which was uh, searching for the Sir John Franklin expedition that had been lost here in 1845. Mr. Holland, if I may interrupt you for a moment, I uh, noticed that these pews uh, were all hand-carved, and uh, the original pews, I presume, are all uh, finished with the fleur-de-lis design. Do you know if there's any significance to that, or is that just a matter of chance? I think it's a matter of chance, largely. I think that uh, it must have been that, they were, that the men of the expedition had seen such pews in England. I suppose they 
thought they would copy them and make a faithful copy for... The Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival One of the most historic events not only in the area but in Manitoba takes place every year in the Paw. Called the Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival, its origins date back over a century. It is not only the oldest festival in all of Manitoba, but one of Canada's oldest winter festivals. The origins of the festival date back to 1916, when local pioneers organized the Paw Dog Derby as a means to publicize the opportunities of the area and to push for more development in the area. At the time, the derby consisted of several events, but it was all around the competitive dog race. From that, the World Championship Dog Race would develop as part of the festival. The first race, held on March 17, 1916, went for 241 kilometers across the snow and ice. At the time, it was the longest dog race in the entire world, and the race would go from the Paw to Carrot River to Cranberry Portage to Flinflon and then to Cumberland House. The festival would be held every year until 1931 except for 1917 and 1918. At this point, the economic conditions forced the festival to shut down for another 17 years. In 1948, the festival would be held in conjunction with the annual Fur Advisory Convention, and the success of the new Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival was a huge success with huge crowds and a profit made. The race was adjusted in 1948 with three daily laps of 50 miles each, and today the race is run in 35-mile heats, three in total, over the course of three days. Since 1948, the festival has been held every year. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the paw in Manitoba. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randa McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.